Hello everyone, welcome to Typhoon Talks, brought to you by Typhoon Consulting, a boutique management consultancy headquartered in Hong Kong. My name is Becky Bates and I'm an analyst here with the firm. This is our second episode in our AI series and today I'm joined by Paul Defonro. He studies some of the societal, economic and philosophical implications of AI and has previously worked at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford University. Paul has supplied documents to the US Congress Committee on Human Rights and to the Mexican government. So welcome, Paul. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. So as everyone I'm sure is aware, there's a lot of hype around AI at the moment. And one of the central tropes in this coverage is scaremongering about the potential applications. This is particularly so as relates to security. One of the examples we're talking about in the office at the moment is AI-enabled children's toys, which I think really brings home a lot of the concerns people have about privacy. So, Paul, do you think we should be worried about the risks of these new technologies? So, in short, yes, I do think we should be, though I think it's worth pulling out which aspects of them we should be worried about. For instance, in most functioning democracies, I would not be particularly afraid of something like the toy example, if what we imagine would be that some firm would be spying on children, for instance, or that it would allow access to people's homes in another way than previously it has been done. I think that's less plausible. However, I think the kinds of applications that might make us slightly more disquieted about privacy are things like if credit card companies have access to selling your data to insurance companies, for instance. In that case, you might have companies like insurance companies who have an incentive to use this data to put a very particular kind of premium on you on that basis. And what you might find then is that the kind of insurance premium you get, or credit from the bank for that matter, could be affected by quite strange and arbitrary factors, or at least factors that seem quite strange and arbitrary to you. Today, for instance, you see different premiums being given to men and women for insurance on cars, because on average, men are less safe drivers than women. Now, what you might find when you have more data becoming available and better methods of extracting valuable information from this data is that things like strange purchases that you take, for for instance, suppose that buying ham will increase your insurance premium. You might ask why, but then it turns out that there is a correlation between buying ham and buying cigarettes, which in turn increases the risk of a disease. And... uh, This might seem arbitrary to us and unfair to put a premium on someone on that basis, but it does provide good information for an insurance company nonetheless. So I think in these cases, we might want to make sure that society steps in and that companies make good use of this data in a way that doesn't seem objectionable to us. Great, that's a really interesting example. You touched on the condition that this is democratic states, that we don't need to worry so much. In the public sphere, we've, we've all seen AI bots take to Twitter, and with new developments, machines can now imitate people's voices or create videos of them from only photographs. Do the concerns we have about this data stop with fake news and people using our data to charge us for services? Or could AI enable the development of sort of Orwellian surveillance states? For example, China is planning to roll out its social credit system, which will reward citizens based upon their internet behavior and other things, which will, in the end, control their access to services. Yes. So these are developments I find quite worrying, uh, I have to admit, and it's been one of the specializations of my research so far. So let's pick apart some different things here. In general, I think AI will 
provide a lot of tools to authoritarian regimes that can make use of it, which is a subset of them. And I'll get to that point in a minute. Now, there are different kinds of applications of AI that could be used by authoritarian regimes. All of them would presumably be made with a purpose of trying to instill political stability and increase the probability of the ruling coalition in these states to remain in power. One of the ones that you mentioned is these kinds of deceptive materials like bots that imitate humans on social media. And another is the kind of surveillance and social credit systems that, for instance, China is using now. In the former case, I am hesitant to say that that will make a radical difference, though it might. The reason is that historically, propaganda has been very often used by authoritarian regimes in a lot of contexts. And what seems to happen is not that people get that persuaded by it, but rather that they start doubting anything they see in the public sphere. Now, this might have other strange effects, but what you might see is rather a disbelief in anything that goes on in social media in these states, as opposed to being convinced um, of the veracity of those claims. On the other side of surveillance and of social credits, for instance, that's something I find more worrying. Because like the example I mentioned before, where insurance companies can make use of your data to create a profile, this is something that, in principle, authoritarian regimes could do as well. For instance, if a state like China has access to your credit card purchases, your movements based on facial recognition systems, knows who you communicate through friends, all this data allows them to put together a pretty thorough picture of who you are, what you do, and potentially even what you believe. And relevantly for them, the uh, probability that you might constitute a threat to, to the regime. So, point being that if a regime has good data available on these things, they can create quite thorough profiles and be more specific in which individuals they might target to avoid protests or other kinds of dissenting behaviours. Yeah, sure. So what kind of thing do you think that will result in? I know it's probably really hard to say, but states having all of this data, what's what's the outcome for citizens? So, in short, it is very hard to say because a lot of things could happen. Now, I think either these kinds of developments provoke a counter-reaction from people who find it quite frustrating and might actually increase political instability in the states as opposed to the intended uh, effect. I think that's less likely, however, and more likely is that it's actually quite effective means of maintaining power relative to the population at large. Now, the effects I think you might see from that is partly that conducting political protests in states that make use of this technology will become more difficult. And the components that become more difficult is to partly organized in any way, because as soon as you try to coordinate a protest or any kind of dissenting behavior, you will probably have the government being aware of that very early on. Two other developments that I think we might see there is partly that I think this might lead to decrease in the use of violence by authoritarian regimes. This is somewhat speculative, but the idea is quite simple, that if you have more information on citizens, then you can be more targeted in the kind of repression you exercise and against whom you exercise it. And being repressive overtly with violence is quite costly for a regime. And this was seen by 
when China used violence in Tiananmen Square, for instance, if a regime can avoid that, it's usually to their advantage. And having more information might allow you to make more subtle uh, means of repression against particular individuals, and hence decrease the risk of a popular uprising in response. The second part, uh, the second effect I think we might see there is that I think these technologies, if implemented, might provoke somewhat of a shift from a kind of authoritarian regime, which we usually talk about today, towards more totalitarian regimes. And the distinction between uh, authoritarian and totalitarian regimes is one made by Juan Linz, a political scientist, where authoritarian regimes are more of a system of governance with one guy on top, to put it simply. And, but it's quite disconnected from society at large. And the kind of states we imagine there are, for instance, maybe modern Turkey is developing in that way. Also, Russia, arguably. Uh, Pinochet's Chile is another example. And as opposed to totalitarian regimes, where the government is quite involved in society and tries to affect it ideologically and culturally in a different way. If these technologies allow the government to become more intimate with its citizens, I think that might provoke a shift towards these more totalitarian developments, which usually have quite negative connotations. They don't need to have that negative connotations, but the difference is rather just that the government becomes more involved in people's lives, for better or for worse. That's really interesting. And I think that distinction between authoritarian and totalitarian states is one that's really lacking in a lot of the literature on AI. It's a really important one to draw out. I think another really interesting thing on that is that it's quite well established in the international community that if you use violent repression against your citizens, you're going to face some kind of reprisals from other international states. Whereas for totalitarian states, I think that especially using technology, more uncharted territory, that kind of leads into the next thing that I thought we should talk about. How will automation affect the global balance of power? So when states are no longer actively repressing their citizens through violence, how do international bodies justify intervention? Right, that's a very interesting question. So on the intervention point, uh, I think you're uh, completely right that often repression by states against their citizens often do provoke international responses sometimes as far as intervention, which is seen in Libya most recently, for instance. However, intervention is very costly, and making use of AI might be a way to actually avoid provoking intervention of this kind, because as we talked about just now, it might allow states to avoid employing overt repression that might look worse in the global media. And therefore, I think, we might see less provoked interventions <clears throat> if these technologies are made use of. But it's a complicated discussion, and I wouldn't want to say anything confidently there. And how does the use of AI in military applications by more powerful, more economically developed states impact global balances of power? I think this is a very neglected point that's not being discussed sufficiently. Now, current AI techniques can be used for military purposes, and I think most likely will be. But it's not quite clear what these look like, and I think that is something that needs to be made clearer. Now, there's a lot of discussion about drones, for instance. I'm not sure drones will be the main thing that will alter the character of war in the way that we might see and uh, 
that the kind of killer robots campaign, for instance, might emphasize. I think there are other applications of AI which might be more disrupting than uh, drones. Now, these technologies are usually the ones you don't think about as much, and they, they're not quite as shiny uh, as something like drones. One example could be more accurate defense systems against ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles being nukes, for instance. And if you have a system which can make use of machine learning techniques to more reliably shoot down incoming missiles, that can shift the balance of power from one of mutually assured destruction to one where one side is relatively safe from the attacks of others. And that can in turn quite radically alter the balance of power. That's not an evident application, but it's <clears throat> one that I think is quite probably quite impactful if it could be implemented. Now, whether it can or not is a technical question I'm not in a position to answer, but I don't think it can be ruled out at this stage. So another application that might not seem as evident is actually to make use of AI for tactical decision-making on the battlefield. And you, something that I think we, most of us don't realize is a significant constraint in battle is communication and decision-making and those being highly synchronized. Now, in modern times, we have the radio and we have other means of communicating between different units. In older times, that was very, very difficult and you usually needed to self-coordinate to manage their divisions and so forth. Uh, but something that AI might allow is to automate parts of that decision-making to make it much more effective. And what you can imagine then, being just slightly hyperbolic here and simplifying, is that the software similar to that that's being used to um, uh, play StarCraft currently could be applied in a model of a real battlefield to make decisions with real units as well for more effective use of the army. This is an application that I think is not being discussed very much, but that could also have significant implications. Just to re-emphasize the importance of AI for military applications, the Department of Defense have released a public document where they explicitly refer to AI as the predicted, quote, third offset strategy, where the first refers to nuclear weapons and the second to precision-guided munitions. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hope these kind of insights are going to be one of the big benefits of this podcast series that will manage to bring out the underexplored areas in the debates around AI. I'm guessing that these military systems will be really expensive and so they'll be adopted by the more economically advanced states by countries like the United States, um, largely their allies, Russia, if it manages to find some more money to continue increasing expenditure on defence. Will this differential between adoption of AI be mirrored within states? Will automation cause higher levels of inequality as the technology is unevenly distributed within and between global societies? This is one area where I'm actually quite pessimistic. So I, and I think the answer is yes, that this could have quite profound effects. Now, to start with, I think we could look at the more general discussion of inequality in the world. Uh, so, most people are familiar with the uh, Thomas Piketty thesis that the returns on capital have increased faster than the returns on labor, and that this would seem to exacerbate the inequality 
because those with capital are usually those who have more money than those who rely on wages. If you introduce an element like AI and increased automation, that would prima facie at least seem to transfer some of the creation of value from labor to capital. Because you would, in, instead of employing someone to do some task, you might automate that with some sort of new machine. And if this becomes more widespread, which is a controversial discussion, should be said, though I think there are good reasons to think that this time it's different, that will likely exacerbate the kind of Piketty effect where inequality would rise even quicker. And this is something I think we might see find to have profound implications on society at large. I, I think this will have quite profound implications um, in, on a scale we might not intuitively believe. So when you, even at the scale where it might shift systems of governance, and this sounds quite apocalyptic, but when you look at most explanations for why democracy has developed, for instance, you see that a lot of them appeal to certain kind of wealth distributions in society, where a growing bourgeoisie or middle class have demanded property rights to protect their newfound wealth. If you see similarly shifting conditions in the distribution of wealth today, I think that might also produce other kinds of shifts in governance. Though it's not a person being discussed very much in these contexts, and particularly not on a business podcast, probably, I think the person to go to when discussing these issues is actually Marx. I think Marx is quite misunderstood and usually connected to his communist sympathies. But his main point is one quite disconnected from his political commitments, which could be simply be put by saying that the kind of society we have depends ultimately on the technology we have. And when the technology changes, like it did from medieval times to the Industrial Revolution, society changes like it did from feudal times to a kind of capitalist society that we've had for the last 200 years or so. And I think you might expect similar kind of profound shifts in society if we see technological shifts by AI and consequent economic shifts. And this is something we should probably study more, if nothing else. Sure. Yeah, I think you're right. We've never discussed Marx on here before. Some of these fears concern current technologies, or narrow AI, which is designed for a single narrow task, like just recognising people's faces. However, most of the hype, and I think some of what you're talking about at least, is focused more generally on future developments, general AI, which will be able to outperform humans in nearly every cognitive task. How far do you think that AI development is going to go in the next decade or so? Right. So I think this is a very interesting discussion, and one that's been had as well, and for good reason. So I will say two things on this. Firstly, on whether fears about general AI are justified or not, and secondly, what which developments we might see in the near future which I think these two questions should come apart. Now, when it comes to general AI, some people, like Nick Bostrom, for instance, have argued that um, AI could have extremely bad consequences at a level which might even threaten humanity. I'm quite sympathetic to being careful with new technologies, because whenever we encounter something that we have not met with before, we don't have any prior reasons to believe that it is innocuous. The fact that we have made it until now says nothing about a new technology, just like the fact that we have been, may have managed to survive previous diseases, for instance, says nothing 
about our ability to survive a new disease if it is profoundly different. For that reason, I think we should always be adopt a kind of precautionary principle about new technologies in particular when it comes to potentially dangerous events. Now, the question you asked, however, was what, which kinds of developments in AI are we, will we probably see in the coming decade or so? Now, perhaps surprisingly, I am actually quite skeptical of the developments in the short term of AI. I believe that we are currently on the top of a hype curve and that we will actually enter another so-called AI winter in a few years. People might be surprised to hear that AI is not a particularly new thing. The term has been around at least since the 50s, with pioneers such as Marvin Minsky developing these kinds of um, so-called symbolic systems approaches to AI. Now, as it turned out, these were extremely ineffective at doing anything resembling human cognition, uh, except for in extremely limited domains. Then the AI project kind of died down a bit in the late 60s and uh, 70s, and then it picked up again with so-called expert system approaches, which then died down again, entering another AI winter. Now we've entered a new era of AI with the machine learning approaches, and in particular deep learning, which has been shown to be extremely effective with, um, in the hands of DeepMind, for instance, and AlphaGo. Now, we might then say, is this the time where we achieve some sort of human-level cognition? And that's where I would be skeptical. The reason is as follows, that even though these methods are much more able and much more general than the previous approaches to AI, they still represent only a very small subset of what our best guesses are of human cognition. And in this case, it's not about explicit formal reasoning like it was before, but this time it's about pattern recognition. Now, the problem with this is that it becomes very sensitive to having a so-called short feedback loops, that is, to get a response when it tries to interact with the environment that's very proximate to its action. So, for instance, in when playing Go, you can run several games, like thousands and thousands of games, I'm almost saying millions, I think, and you start seeing patterns of which kinds of games are good, and you get a feedback on that. However, my guess is that it will take a very long time until we see an AI playing something like Civilization or these kinds of long strategy games where you only get feedbacks in very complicated ways much, much later. Because in order to understand those, you, use, you would presumably need some sort of conceptual learning where you can fit in data into compartments that already exist. Now, this is speculative, but some people like Gary Marcus, for instance, has argued that we need to integrate the previous approaches to AI with the new approaches in deep learning in order to see any serious progress approximating human cognition. I think this is unlikely to happen in the short term because we rely so heavily on the machine learning approaches now. And for that reason, I think we might see a dip, but things might be very different in the further future when we start seeing the integration of these different approaches and then AI might become something profoundly powerful and different to what we've seen before. 
Okay, so this is going to have to be a really long podcast series. <laughs> In light of these concerns, controls on AI and legislation around it seem basically inevitable. In relation to GDPR, I know that here in Hong Kong, we've seen huge demand for our cybersecurity team because it's so cross-regional, the impact. How do we design laws that are going to control AI on a global scale? It's very difficult, is the short answer. Because the problem with AI is that it's a very ubiquitous technology, which can be put to use for purposes that are very economically viable and productive, which everyone wants to make use of. But the very same technologies, pattern recognition systems, can be used for nefarious purposes, such as those that we've been discussing before. What we might worry about as well are things like cyber terrorism and uh, automated hacking systems. Uh, these are things which we might need to regulate um, and to make sure that uh, independent actors would have limited access to it, but that's very difficult because it's very easy to get your hands on an algorithm. It doesn't quite exist in the way that you can um, regulate as easily as big heavy objects um, or the transfer of uranium or something similar to that. So I'm not sure how to approach that and I think it will be a big challenge if it is feasible at all, unfortunately. Yeah, sure. You mentioned kind of nefarious purposes, which which got me thinking. In the inevitable global context that AI will develop in, how do we define nefarious purposes when conceptions of what counts as nefarious will vary so much between the societies who want to use AI? So, funnily enough, being formally a philosopher, if anything, this is the kind of question I should uh, just uh, pick up and run around with, probably. But I actually think that this is a question that has a relatively simple response. And that is that most of us across societies probably agree on what would count as nefarious, at least in the international contexts. Most of us would like to see some sort of peace and not see people harmed. And with some, this varies more, but still some concern for privacy and the integrity of individual human beings and groups. And as far as AI technologies would violate concepts, I think we might find it easier to coalesce uh, on those questions. The real difficult discussions probably go back more to authoritarian regimes and when you can make use of AI to um, undermine individual freedoms in those states. There, it's a difficult question. Um, culture varies across states in this kind, and the perception of the individual versus the group is also something that varies across societies. And that's just something we'll have to kind of try to compromise on between societies so that we can get along, and at the same time not accept anything that profoundly violates human rights. Sure. If you can answer such a question so clearly and succinctly, I think you're going to revolutionise the field of philosophy. That's sadly all we have time for today. So, Paul, would you mind giving our listeners three key takeaways from today's episode? The first one would be that authoritarian states can make good use of AI, and this might change the future of authoritarian governance. I think this is relevant both for human rights groups to pay attention to, but also businesses to study the future of political stability in such states. Secondly, I think that 
applications of AI through automation and potential economic shifts that might cause could have deeply profound implications for society at large at a level which not it's not being discussed that much today, which I think it ought to. And thirdly, that in the shorter term, the coming decade or so, I think we should be careful in predicting radical developments in AI and study the more fundamental technologies underlying these to see that we are probably currently on the top of a hype curve and that will disappoint a lot of people. But once that hype dies down and we start developing other techniques, we might again start looking at what implications AI could have on an even deeper level in society at large. Great, thanks. That wraps up today's episode of Typhoon Talks. Thank you very much for joining us, Paul. It's been a really interesting discussion. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Follow us on Twitter at Typhoon Buzz and on iTunes and SoundCloud at Typhoon Talks for more podcast episodes. Also, please visit our website at www.typhoonconsulting.com for more industry points of view. We hope you'll join us again next time for our next episode in the series.